0: This is DNA Anne, the podcast bringing you the latest science and innovation in DNA and your health.
1: Hello and welcome to our bonus episode, answering your DNA questions. This episode will be answering questions from the Green Man Music Festival. Curious? Stay tuned to hear all about it. Hello and welcome. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah.
0: And I'm Angelos.
1: Today we're answering your questions from the Green Man Music Festival, where members of the UK Genetic Society volunteered to run a sand in the science area of the festival called Einstein's Garden. Joining us today is one of those volunteers, Mike Poynter, who is in fact a podcast host himself. Mike, welcome to DNA. And could you introduce yourself for our listeners and tell them a little bit about the Heredity podcast?
2: Hey, Hannah, and hey, Angelos, and hi, everybody listening. I'm Mike Poynter. I'm a researcher at the University of East Anglia, and I work mostly on things that involve experimental evolution with beetles and then sequencing their DNA to look at where and how the genomes have adapted. Uh, like you say, I also host the podcast of the journal Heredity, which is a scientific journal owned by the Genetic Society, and each month I talk to the authors of a recent article published in the journal and find out about them, why they're interested in the things that they study, the results of their recent work, and what the implications of their findings might be. This also seems like a good place to say that I do evolutionary and ecological genetics, and know absolutely nothing about human or medical genetics. So I'm going to keep stum on any questions in that area, or at least rely on you two to correct me when I'm wrong. Oh, can I
0: have um, a beetle-related question? Is it true that The beetle species are the largest biomass on Earth.
2: don't know about biomass. I recently said to a friend of mine that one in every two species on Earth is a beetle and it's the most species-rich taxa. And he quickly corrected me to the most species-rich taxa that we know about. Uh, But he's a fly fly guy (laughs) and assures me that (laughs) that there are more flies. But he can't prove it yet. Right, so that festival sounds exciting.
0: I'm sad I I was not there, unfortunately. So tell me, what was that like? Was it a music festival, you said?
1: Yes, yeah, so... If the listeners are familiar with Green Man Festival, it might be a bit weird to say that we were talking about science there because it is a music festival, but it has 10 different areas. And one of those areas is a science engagement area called Einstein's Garden, which I think is fantastic. I think all music festivals should have this. Not that I'm biased, but I'm a scientist. So Mike and myself... That's <laughs> who <So> I am. <laughs> yeah, Mike and myself are among the volunteers. So it was with the UK Genetic Society. They were running a stand there, a marquee, and it was a fantastic opportunity. So we got to talk about science the weekend and go and enjoy some music as well
2: yeah so the Genetics society is a charity that raises funds from publishing scientific journals like heredity and it uses that money to promote the teaching and understanding of genetics in the general public so with that as a goal big events like music festivals that increasingly have science areas are a great opportunity to get out and talk to people We had quite a few activities on the stand, designed to be entertaining for kids, but also with a big helping of genetics on top. And the headliner on our stage was Genetics Bingo, which combined a fun genetics quiz with your nan's favourite gambling game. But (laughs) no money was involved. We also had various crafting activities, and then often while the kids were occupied, we could chat to the adults about their DNA questions, or hook them in with a couple more grown-up activities. So so the Green Man, you also have questions from kids, right?
1: Well, not just kids. We had questions from all sorts of, of visitors to the stand. So yes, we were asking people who came along if they would like to feature on the podcast and if they had any DNA-related questions. So that is the theme of today's episode, to answer those questions and have a discussion. And yeah.
0: All right. Yeah. Let, let's get started then.
1: Okay. Are we ready? So we'll play the first one all right so what's your question what are the parts of dna made up of fantastic question
0: all right so yeah yeah yeah. it's a great question and i remember when i had this kind of questions anyway i'm going to be reminiscing there anyway so it's definitely something we should explain on this podcast since it's all about dna so we often say that dna is made up of four letters a c t NG. so what are these exactly?
1: I know we describe this in every episode, but it it still blows my mind (laughs) that it's four (laughs) letters. So A, C, T, and G stand for adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. And I think the the question itself is quite a nice way of wording it too, because DNA is made up of pieces which come together, and we call each piece a nucleotide. If we use the analogy of of a zipper, imagine you're zipping up your coat, you can think of the pieces of DNA as the different teeth on the zips.
0: Oh yeah, that's a great analogy. It piece, or nucleotide, is a molecule with three parts. There's a part we call sugar, a part we call the phosphate group, and one part we call the bases, which is exactly what we refer to as A, C, D, or G. And they fit together very specifically. So the A fits together with the T, a bit like when you shake someone's hand.
2: Uh, Yeah, that's good. My favourite thing to add on top of that, I suppose, is that... Because of what we refer to as the complementary nature of the bases, one always pairing with another. And because the strands are doubled, it means that if you then take those strands apart and you only have one of the pair, you can reconstruct its partner. And that's how DNA is replicated. Uh, It's all based around that clever complementary double helix system.
1: Yes. So the listeners can't. See, but I'm nodding approvingly at the use of key terms. (laughs) She is. Yes, very good.
2: (laughs) I could see that. I appreciated it. (laughs)
1: Good. Okay, so should we move on to the next question?
2: Yes, please.
1: Is there a computer programme that can read the letters of the DNA and the differences in it? And if so, how is this developed?
2: Uh, So that is a really good question. And the answer is pretty much a yes but that misses out a lot of really cool details about the process. Before we can get into looking at the differences in the DNA, we need to be able to read the code. And once I've got pure-ish DNA out of my beetles, the letters are read by machines, and we call this sequencing. The techniques are super complicated, but mostly involve going along a strand of DNA and detecting either a tiny light signal or an electrical signal, which is different depending on which of the four letters comes next in the sequence. And over the last 50-ish years, people have been working on improving how this is done. And I think the speed and accuracy of modern DNA sequencing would have been beyond their wildest dreams. Where the hard work really starts for most geneticists and where the computer programs really come into their own is at the next stage in actually interpreting those billions of letters that you get back. Because the sequence that you get is usually in tiny chunks, and before you can do anything you have to build a reference sequence which you then map these tiny puzzle pieces to. It's like first constructing the picture on the front of the box. Luckily, you only need to do that once, more or less, and then everyone working with the DNA of a certain species will use the same picture on the box for their puzzle.
1: Great analogy.
2: Thank you. And all of this is so hard because the DNA is so long, right? The files that you get are so big you can't open them on a normal computer. So places like universities have high-performance computers called clusters that you use to process your genetic data. And there are fantastically clever programs that people have written to help. But there's really one useful thing, uh, and that's that most bits of different DNA samples are the same. So if we take two people, then way more than 99% of the positions in their genome are the same. And we don't need to worry about all of that stuff. So we use handy computer programs to filter our data down to just the bits that are different from the reference, and we call those variant sites. So as the question correctly identified, there is a lot of computer science in modern biology, and whole fields of science now, like bioinformatics, which is the analysis of complex biological data, are essentially a blend of the two, of biology and of computer science.
1: Mike just mentioned our favorite word.
2: It's bioinformatics. You said yeah.
1: it right.
0: <laughs> well, this this episode is about to be twenty minutes longer.
1: <laughs> no, we'll hold back.
2: But are we all bioinformaticians here? Um, I'm, I'm a bioinformatician as of the last month. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh really? C- welcome well, to the dark side. I,
1: Congratulations.
2: <laughs> once I get back in R, that's where I'm most at home. If, yes, once exactly. I get out of Bash yes. and back into our studio, I'm happy.
1: Exactly right.
2: So we move to the next question?
1: Yes, we shall. Hi, I'm Charlotte, and my question is, does everybody have the same number of genes? Okay, hello, Charlotte. This has to be one of my favourite questions. So I guess the answer is, like, sort of, but we should start with the definition of a gene. To recap, our human DNA is 6 billion letters long, but that's half from each parent, and roughly 2% of that total DNA is made up of what we call genes. So a gene is a small part of the DNA which is... Transcribed. So we're going a lot of key terms here. So if you're not familiar with the technical term transcribed, it's what we geneticists say when a piece of DNA is recognized by specific machinery, which comes along, reads it, and creates a messenger molecule, which can then be read to create a protein. And that step we call translation. So I've got a new analogy for you. All right. Yeah. Let's hear it. So to describe, uh, well, to describe transcribing. So if you imagine a cell as being a city, and in the middle of the city there's a great library which contains all the instructions for creating the city and making it run. But there's only one set of instructions in the library which explain how to create each thing. So say you want to create a thousand, I don't know, teapots, and the instructions to make a teapot are there's just one set of those instructions that are in the library in one specific paragraph in one book. So what you have is lots of people in the library who write out and copy that specific paragraph, and then they post all the copies out into the city, into the factories, which make all the teapots.
0: Pretty nice. All right. Yeah, it's good. I like the analogy of postage, because we call messenger RNA.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. So it's called messenger RNA, which right. is transcribed from the genes, and then that exits the nucleus and goes into the cytoplasm where the factory's ribosomes are, and they make proteins.
0: So yeah, and genes have actually specific symbols made of A, T, G, and C at the start and at the end of a gene. So so this machinery would know, okay, so I'll start transcribing from here on until there.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So in total, humans have just under 20,000 protein coding genes that we know of. Actually, we have way more than 20,000 proteins because each gene Can make different versions of the same protein but we don't want to overcomplicate it
1: but we could overcomplicate it more right
2: yeah there are a lot more genes too but instead of containing the instructions for proteins they do things like control the activity of other ones
1: yes non-coding genes we call them
2: uh yes and there are all kinds of extra complications So for example, one is that we have sex chromosomes. So the human X chromosome is about three times longer than the Y and has nearly 20 times more genes. But because biological females have two Xs and biological males have one of each, females have two versions of all the many genes on the X, while males have only one copy of those, but they have in addition a single copy of the 55 genes on the Y chromosome. So if you're counting versions of the same gene as one gene, I think you have to say that males have more genes, but they have fewer copies overall.
1: Yes, although as a biological female, I think uh, the overall genes is probably more important. I thought you might say that. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so there's also people who can have an additional chromosome, for example, although that's connected with health implications because the the human body is quite finely tuned to the expected number of genes. And on a smaller scale than a whole chromosome, there can also be what we call structural variants. So they can cover thousands or, or millions of those letters. So they could be pieces of the DNA which are deleted or pieces of the DNA which are duplicated. And many of these regions actually will not include genes, because remember we said only 2% of the DNA is genes. So these variations could occur in that other 98%, which are not genes, um, but they can occur where the genes are.
0: Yeah, we actually discussed an example in our last episode on pharmacogenomics, search for DNA and drugs, where 1% of the population has a duplication of gene called C2D6, which encodes the machinery which activates the painkiller coding by converting into morphine and in that specific example the consequence in that these individuals have ultra fast metabolism of certain medications.
1: Yes, so to answer the question, we all have roughly the same number of genes but there can be some variation.
2: So that's a, sorry, so that's a duplication of that gene but the two copies are doing the same thing still. I would argue that that's not more genes. Ooh.
1: Wow. Ooh. well it goes it goes back to <laughs> well, our copies yes, okay. of the
2: same same gene more genes right and i i see what you I mean think yeah there are multiple ways to think about it i think it's a, if it's a duplication of a gene then perhaps it's not more genes but then of course like with that redundancy the extra copies could evolve to have different functions in which case i would then concede that it's a different gene.
1: Yeah. All right. So, Excellent thirty point.
2: minutes longer this episode.
1: <laughs> no, no, that, that's a really good point. So it depends when you, if, if you're looking at it in terms of the absolute number of g- physical units of genes or unique genes that are different. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> we'll have to follow this up in a, in another episode.
2: Arguing about what a gene is. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a great episode. Uh,
1: but, but gene. B- before and the deco- we start arguing, should we move on to the next question? Yeah. yeah.
2: DNA and The big gene definition controversy. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we'll just figure it
0: out in 20 minutes.
1: Hello, we are Sophie Brett and Bea González coming from Manchester. And we have a question. Um, So if you're albino, is it that you don't express certain genes or is there a gene for being albino? Thank you very much. Uh,
2: So having said that I was going to stay out of the medical genetics, I did some reading on this but I'm gonna defer to you guys afterwards. So from what I've read, albinism is a collective term for a few different things, all relating to the amount of melanin that people produce. Melanin is made by cells called melanocytes, which are found in hair and skin and eyes. And there are several proteins that go into making it. And there are several genes contributing to making those proteins. And that means that there are several ways that the process can be interrupted. So to get back to the question, it's certainly not as simple as there being a single gene for being albino. It's more like there are several genes that can affect melanin production in which genetic variants can occur. And we might say that they have a different version of the gene and this will be inherited from their parents or there may be random genetic changes in that individual as well. However, there is one form of albinism that's controlled by a gene on the X chromosome. And as men only have a single copy of genes on that X chromosome, they can inherit albinism just from their mothers, whereas their sisters will likely only have a single copy and be carriers of albinism without being albino or showing the phenotype, as we say.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. that was a great explanation. Yes. So you want to come over to medical genetics? Uh,
2: no, I'm You'd good. Very I like would be uh... <laughs> um,
1: so I quite like the question because it was... If you don't express certain genes, more key terms. Yeah,
0: she's done her homework.
1: Yeah, I'm loving it. So we should explain. We use the term expressed when the gene instructs the machinery to produce that messenger molecule. Take the letter that's posted. That's how I'm going to describe it from now on. Um, And we say it's not expressed when the messenger molecule is not produced.
0: So if we go back to your analogy, is it not expressed when the letter is not posted or not written? Sorry, I just just wanted to overcomplicate (laughs) things again.
1: But if we do want to get complicated, okay. So you can get (laughs) messenger RNA molecules that are transcribed from the gene. So you'll say the gene is expressed, but there could be a genetic variant which impacts the stability of the messenger RNA molecule and actually mean that the RNA is degraded, it's broken down before it's posted.
2: So we measure gene expression by quantifying the amount of letters in the post, right? That contain that paragraph from the library. Mm. So, you describe more than one part in the process where the expression can be interrupted, and is one of those more difficult to detect with RNA seq than another. It's mm. like there a way that we would think that it was either expressed or not when it wasn't actually the case. I, I guess so, I and mean, that's something I've never thought about before. Yeah,
1: it's it's a, re- it's a really good point because what we're observing is what our experiments able to tell us. Yes. So usually with RNA sequencing, we're looking at RNA molecules that are in the cytoplasms—they've already been posted, mm-hmm. right? But you can do single nuclei RNA seq, in which case you're looking at the RNA which is in the nucleus still. So that's the letters before they've been posted. So I think, yeah, the definition is probably a bit subjective in that case.
0: Hmm. This is why you don't ask a scientist different questions, because they'll go on about it.
1: <laughs> Sorry, <and> happily. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the point of the episode, right? For us yeah, to have yeah, a discussion.
0: Yeah, of course my name is Bill and my question is what do you think of direct to consumer genetic tests Ooh. do you think Bill is working for a company doing to consumer
1: <laughs> tests <laughs> <laughs> um, okay well let's assume Bill is not a corporate spy um, and we will <laughs> answer your question which is actually quite a challenging question okay so we should probably first describe what a direct to consumer genetic test is um, and then maybe discuss the pros and cons so and just, do you want to start with the definition?
0: Yep. So a direct-to-consumer genetic tests are those offered by private companies, which you can pay to take. Some companies have information on your ancestry, but other companies may offer information about your uh, health-related background.
1: Exactly. So there are various companies, and one of the most well-known is 23andMe. So this is an American company, but you can take the test if you're not American. And since this is a DNA and healthcare related podcast, uh, we'll focus on this side for the discussion rather than the ancestry. So I think the first point to make is that direct to consumer genetic tests are absolutely not recommended or designed to diagnose any medical conditions. But many do contain these health related reports. So we'll use 23andMe as, as an example. So actually, several of their reports that they give are approved by the fda but several of their reports are not approved by the fda not reviewed by them but are based on their own research and they do a lot of research actually 23andme so that's one positive so they have uh, for example of the fda approved genetic health tests include for the BRCA mutations and these substantially increase risk of breast cancer and some of the reports based on their own research include risk of type 2 diabetes which we could debate uh, coronary artery disease and migraine
2: hmm. yeah i would say that 23 Me is probably the most well-established service They have over 14 million customers, and I guess it's perhaps because it's so popular that the FDA have engaged with them on that. Um, The risk is maybe higher with other smaller companies who haven't attracted the same attention and might not have been held to the same high standard.
0: Yeah, and also the reports tend to be comprehensive, meaning you buy a test from one of these companies and they send you back a whole bunch of reports.
2: Yeah, one of the risks with direct-to-consumer genetic tests is that the technology can outpace the legislation and the lawmaking. And whereas in a hospital you have the protection in the form of a specific test which avoids incidental findings and a highly trained genetic counsellor to explain any results and their implications which may extend to your family members, this isn't true for a direct-to-consumer test.
1: Yeah, so these are all very excellent points. And I think the main advice is to exercise caution when looking at direct-to-consumer genetic tests. But we should talk about some of the advantages as well. So, for example, the technology to find relevant health information from your DNA Can be really useful and can inform your lifestyle choices. And the technology is out there, but it might not be readily available through certain healthcare systems. So, for example, if you're a carrier of a genetic variant, which causes a rare disease, that means you don't have the condition, but you would be at risk of having children with the condition if your partner, by chance, has the same rare variant. So, I mean, that knowledge is really powerful, right? If you know that you carry a variant and you know that your partner does, then you can seek out a healthcare professional and then they can help you find what your options are right okay and another example is with pharmacogenomics and again check out our episode DNA and drugs so the technology exists to inform you which medications you may be resistant to or which ones can cause you to have a bad reaction but again healthcare systems have yet to incorporate these tests so direct-to-consumer genetic tests can provide you with the opportunity to gain knowledge which may be very relevant to your health, which you can then discuss with your doctor. Although actually, a lot of GPs aren't currently trained to interpret genetic tests, but there's ongoing initiatives within the NHS, at least, to change this.
0: Yeah, we discussed that in the pharmacogenomics with, with Emma, right?
1: Yes. Could that be the DNA and drugs episode that we're recommending everybody listens <laughs> to <do? laughs>
0: Definitely not biased. So you mentioned diabetes risk prediction. So let's say I take this test. How does that output look like and how much should i trust it
1: yeah that, that one's a really good question actually and this is where a lot of the debate arises so there's a bit of a difference between rare conditions and complex conditions more mm-hmm. key terms right complex diseases is what we call them but i mean these are conditions which are actually complex but the true definition is that they're both influenced by genetics and by the environment so with these rarer conditions which tend to be caused by one genetic variant that's deterministic is very clear that causes the disease, then we can check if it's present or not. But with something like diabetes, which is influenced by hundreds of different parts of the DNA, which all contribute a small amount of increased risk, along with the environment, it's very, very difficult to predict. And if you speak to most geneticists, they would agree that we just cannot predict an individual's risk of of complex disease. It's, It's a complex one. I wouldn't really trust it that much. It can be informative if it says you've got a very high risk i mean if that helps you change your lifestyle to be more healthy that's always a good thing but just remember that that's trying to predict based on what we know of so my analogy for this one is like trying to predict somebody's age by looking at their shoes There's, right. you're missing a lot of information because we just don't know about it yet
2: but if they are wearing platform trainers they're probably not 85
1: <laughs> do you know i don't know i don't know i don't know
2: risky for the ankles. Right, so back
0: to something a bit more relatable. So the question is, if identical twins are zygotic twins, why are they not identical? How come we can tell them apart from looking at them?
2: So this is a very, well, maybe you should first, Hannah, define what a zygotic twin is.
1: So a zygotic twin is when one egg has been fertilised and then it splits into two and two individuals develop.
2: Exactly. As opposed to two separate eggs being fertilized and just growing up together.
0: Which is no different than any siblings, right?
2: True. Indeed. Yes. So it's a very good question. And like a lot of the other questions from today, there are levels to the answer. I think the first level to this one is that Even though the genes of monozygotic twins might be the same, there's a lot more than genes that goes into determining the phenotype of any organism. And that's just as true for humans. If you took two cuttings from an apple tree and then planted them both, you wouldn't expect the trees that grew eventually to look exactly the same, even though they're both genetic clones of the original tree.
1: Great analogy. I think we're on top of the analogies today. So for many traits, DNA is not 100% deterministic. The environment and the things you're exposed to as you grow also play a role. Back to the question, can we tell apart identical twins just by looking at them? So that one's quite specific to physical appearance. So I guess face shape and face structure?
2: Yeah. So the next layer of the answer is more about genetics, not just the genes that are present in an organism, but the way that they're expressed, which we talked about a bit already. And that is called epigenetics. So different types of chemical tags attached at different positions on the genome can affect how actively genes are expressed. And a person's epigenome isn't constant. It can change throughout their life, including in response to things in their environment. So from the moment that a single egg splits and begins developing into two separate people, the little tags on their genome that alter the expression of their genes can start to diverge. And this process can affect all kinds of traits, including appearance. So it's possible that it's contributing to differences between monozygotic twins. Debunked?
1: Debunked? Yeah. The question was true, though. We can tell them apart.
0: Oh, well.
1: What's the opposite of debunked? Bonked.
0: (laughs) Super (laughs) bonked.
1: Super bonked. So, um, sadly, actually, because I'm quite enjoying this, that is the end of our question list. For this episode
0: yes that's um,
1: it. so let's say a massive thank you to mike for joining us today and helping us debunk and bunk other questions <laughs> thank you very much mike did you enjoy yourself
2: i did but next time i'm going to bring loads of ecological genetics questions and make you answer them
1: <laughs> oh, oh no we mm, might struggle a bit yeah
2: good <laughs> you, you'll good. know how i've been feeling today
1: oh well, <laughs> thank you very much for being a good sport and joining us
2: thanks very much for having me
1: you're welcome so that's the end of the episode and we will be I think repeating this uh, episode format and doing other bonus episodes where we answer questions because this has been a lot of fun for us and hopefully a lot of fun for you listening so if you have any questions please do send them to us we have a Twitter handle which Angelos will share
0: yes of course and that is at DNA and Pod with N spelled A-N-D and a capital P for pod
1: yes correct
0: thank <laughs> good, you have been good practicing.
1: Job. good job uh, yes yeah, so we, we're on Twitter or uh, X as we have to call it and you can also find us on instagram same dna and pod and we're going to be having websites soon so please keep an eye out for that and just send us any questions that you have once again thank you to the uk genetic society who both support this podcast and allowed us to attend the green man festival as volunteers and to record these questions for today so stay tuned and keep an eye out for the next episode which is going to be dna and covid19